Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. Monsters are as old as humanity itself. Monsters embody our fears. Yet, they help us define the boundaries of what it means to be human. We know most monsters aren't real, yet we can use monsters to learn about reality, psychology, biology, folklore, literature, critical thinking. We're on a journey to learn about the world through the lens of monsters, and we hope you'll come along with us. Subscribe at monstertalk.org. Have you ever stood in front of a mirror inside a darkened room with a lit candle, chanting the name Bloody Mary? hoping to see Mary's ghost appear behind you? If you have, then you're not alone. The Bloody Mary story is a long-standing urban legend that has kept generations of people awake during slumber parties around the world. The thing is, though, no one really knows how long people have been telling the story of Bloody Mary, or exactly where the tale originated from. In some versions of the story, Bloody Mary will reach out of the mirror and scratch the face of the person who dared speak her name, or in some even scarier versions... She'll actually grab the person and cause their hair to turn white. Or, even worse, she'll drag the person inside the mirror with them into whatever dark realm she inhabits, never to be seen again. Many folklorists have examined the origins of the story of Bloody Mary, although no one is really sure where or how the urban legend began. Some folklorists have suggested the tale is an allegory for young girls transitioning into womanhood since the story revolves around blood suddenly appearing in a young girl. Others have said the story dates all the way back to Mary I of England, a.k.a. Mary Tudor, who earned the nickname Bloody Mary after putting a whole bunch of Protestants to death. One way or another, though, the story of the ghost in the mirror has lived on and has become so popular, it has even inspired other modern-day horror stories. Back in 1992, the hit film Candyman was released about a ghostly killer with a hook for a hand, who bursts out of a mirror when you say his name five times. The film was based on a short story by Clive Barker. But one thing that's probably not so well known is that the movie was also partly inspired by a very real murder. The true story that helped inspire Candyman involves a 52-year-old woman named Ruthie Mae McCoy. It's a tragic story that demonstrates how our institutions fail the most marginalized and underprivileged members of society. Ruthie Mae grew up in Chicago's South Side, she began exhibiting symptoms of mental illness early on in life, and she quit school in the 10th grade. She would often act unpredictably. She talked to herself a lot and sometimes would burst out with streams of profanity at total strangers. Ruthie May was diagnosed with residual type schizophrenia, a diagnosis that occurs when an individual has experienced schizophrenic episodes in the past, but is not actually experiencing them currently. In the months before her death, she had been receiving treatment for a condition at an outpatient psychiatric clinic. Because of her mental illness, Ruthie Mae McCoy was unable to hold down a steady job. She was institutionalized several times throughout her life. By 1983, Ruthie Mae was forced to live in public housing, in an 11th floor flat in a 15-story building known as the Grace Abbott Homes. 
This building was actually located very close to the infamous Cabrini Green housing project, where the film Candyman was set. It appears that in the months before her murder in 1987, Ruthie May had been attempting to move out of the projects. It's known that Ruthie May applied for supplemental security income, which not only doubled the monthly monetary assistance she received, but it also paid retroactively to the date of the application. This meant that Ruthie May's first check was nearly $2,000, a sizable amount of money for a poor mentally ill black woman back in the 1980s. Ruthie May planned on using the money to not only help her move out of the Grace Abbott homes, but also for her to purchase some new clothes and a few other household essentials. She wasn't living extravagantly, but it's likely her new spending would have drawn attention from the people around her. Police theorized that whoever killed Ruthie May did so because they believed she kept a large sum of money in her apartment. On the evening of April 22, 1987, the Chicago Police Department received a frantic phone call from Ruthie May McCoy. Ruthie sounded terrified. She was screaming so much into the phone, the police dispatcher had a difficult time understanding her. Ruthie May kept shrieking something about people coming through her bathroom mirror after her. What happened next demonstrated a shocking level of negligence on the part of the police. Apparently, the dispatcher didn't note Ruthie May's call as a break-in, which didn't trigger the officers sent to the scene to act with any real urgency. Even though during the time the officers did arrive at Ruthie May's apartment, several more 911 calls came in from the neighbors reporting they had heard shouts and gunfire coming from the building. When the police arrived at Ruthie May's apartment, they knocked, but no one answered. Officers went to the apartment manager's office to retrieve the key, but for some reason the key didn't fit the lock. Now you'd think that, given Ruthie May's frantic phone call, along with the other 911 calls reporting hearing gunshots, that the police would have broken down the door, but instead they just gave up and left. The following day, the Chicago police received another phone call from one of Ruthie May's neighbors who was worried about her. Ruthie May always greeted her twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, but the neighbor hadn't seen Ruthie May all day. A couple police officers returned to Ruthie May McCoy's apartment to perform a wellness check. Once again, the officers knocked on the door and, once again, since no one answered their knocks, they simply left. It's been reported the police actually debated on breaking into Ruthie May's apartment at this point, but a security guard talked them out of it. Nonetheless, the neighbor who regularly saw Ruthie May remained worried. So next she went to the management office, who sent a couple workers to open up Ruthie May's apartment. What they found inside was both tragic and terrifying. Ruthie May McCoy's dead body was found in her bedroom. She had been shot several times. The room had been ransacked. Because she had been dead a couple days by that point, the smell of decomposition was thick in the air. Medical examiners were able to determine that based on her wounds and the amount of time it likely would have taken her to bleed to death, that it's possible that Ruthie Mae McCoy might still have been alive at the time the police first arrived at her door and knocked. Normally, the murder of a mentally ill black woman being shot to death in Chicago's projects wouldn't even warrant a news story. But the main reason we know about Ruthie Mae McCoy's murder is because of one significant detail. When Ruthie Mae McCoy was calling the police to report that men were coming through her bathroom mirror, this wasn't the ravings of someone experiencing a schizophrenic episode. She was telling the truth. It turns out the cheap construction of the Grace Abbott homes made it so you could actually remove the bathroom's medicine cabinet and gain entry to an apartment by climbing through from the bathroom in the adjacent apartment. 
And that's precisely what Ruthie May's killers did. According to a 1987 article in the Chicago Reader, several people in the projects had experienced similar burglaries over the past year, where the burglars broke into an apartment by climbing through the opening behind the medicine cabinet from the apartment next door. Two men would later be arrested for Ruthie May's burglary, break-in, and murder, but they were found not guilty in court. Officially, Ruthie May McCoy's murder remains unsolved. A fictionalized version of Ruthie Mae McCoy's story was actually retold in the 1992 film Candyman, which just goes to show how an urban legend can be inspired by real events and take out a life of its own. The concept of the urban legend is something that has been around for practically as long as people have told stories to one another. Back in the 1980s, folklorist Jan Harald Brunvond helped popularize the term urban legend through a series of popular books on the subject. The idea of an urban legend is a story that is often repeated, but as the story is told and retold, the story changes over time. Often the origins of the tale can be difficult to pin down. So in honor of this Halloween season, in this episode I want to tell you three ghost stories which are likely just urban legends. These are all stories that have been passed around regionally, but don't have a ton of evidence to back them up. But one thing I can say is that they're all creepy. And like any good urban legend... I heard it from a friend of a friend that they just might be true. I'm Nate Hale, and I'll be your crypt keeper for these spooky tales, boys and ghouls. And this is The Conspirators. Part 1. Fisher's Ghost One of the most well-known ghost stories to emerge out of Australia is that of Fisher's ghost. The story begins with a man named Frederick George James Fisher, who was born on August 28, 1792. He became a shopkeeper when he was in his 20s. He fathered two children, although he never married. The details are a little fuzzy exactly how it all came about, but at some point Fisher obtained some forged banknotes through his business, for which he was arrested and tried in 1815. He was then sentenced to 14 years in Australia's penal colony. By 1822, Fisher had served half his sentence when he replied for early release. After being set free, Fisher applied for permission to purchase some property in Campbelltown. His closest neighbor was a man named William George Worrell, who back then was considered to be a fine, upstanding member of the community. In 1825, Fisher and a local carpenter named William Brooker got into an argument over some money. The argument escalated to the point where Fisher pulled out a knife and stabbed Brooker. The assault caused Fisher to receive a light prison sentence. Because Fisher was worried about what would happen to his property while he was in jail, he granted power of attorney to George Worrell during his incarceration. Fisher served his sentence, then returned to town a short while later. But on June 17, 1826, Fred Fisher disappeared. George Worrell told neighbors that he thought Fisher was running from the law. Three weeks later, Worrell sold Fisher's horse and other personal belongings, claiming that the man had left them to him before he fled the country. This, of course, raised a lot of suspicions. On September 17, 1826, George Worrell was arrested on suspicion of Fred Fisher's murder. Worrell denied the charges. He then changed his story, claiming now that although he hadn't actually murdered Fisher, he knew who did. 
He pointed the finger of blame at four other local men who were subsequently arrested. Then, late one night in October 1826, a local farmer named John Farley stumbled into a hotel in town looking as pale as if he'd seen a ghost. Which, in fact, he did. Farley claimed that he'd been walking along a road at night when he felt a strange chill in the air. That was when he saw the ghost of Fred Fisher sitting on the rail of a bridge. Fisher wasn't translucent the way the movies often depict spectral figures. But Fisher appeared to be as solid as if he were still alive. Which the man knew for a fact, he wasn't. Fisher's ghost directed Farley's attention by pointing toward a paddock down the creek before he abruptly faded away. Then on October 25, 1826, two young boys were cutting across Fisher's farm when they noticed bloodstains on a fence. Authorities investigated further and discovered a bloody lock of hair and a human tooth. A local constable searched the area but couldn't find any further evidence of Fred Fisher's whereabouts. An aboriginal tracker was brought in and he managed to locate Fisher's remains in a shallow grave on George Worrell's land. Worrell was tried and convicted of Fred Fisher's murder on February 2, 1827. He was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. On the gallows, Worrell finally confessed to Fisher's murder. He said that it had all been a terrible accident and that he'd killed the man after he mistook him for a horse eating his wheat crop, which really doesn't make sense either, but sure, why not? The strange thing I find about the story of Fisher's ghost is that despite how popular the tale has become, the ghost almost seems superfluous to it. Although John Farley claimed to have seen Fisher's ghost pointing in one direction, that's not actually what led to the discovery of Fisher's remains. You could take the ghost out of it, the story entirely, and things would have played out the same way. One theory that's been put forth about Fisher's ghost is that John Farley invented the story of seeing the spirit as a way of covering up knowledge he had of the murder and the whereabouts of Fisher's body. Maybe he saw the body being buried and decided to make up the ghost story in order to prevent implicating himself. Another strong possibility, though, is that the ghost story is just a hoax. It turns out the part about Fisher's ghost didn't actually begin appearing in stories about the murder until it began making the rounds in some Sydney newspapers and magazines sometime in the late 19th century. In fact, there aren't any mentions of a ghost in the trial records of the case. According to the official records, the body was discovered because the police found several traces of blood on the fence that led them to search the area. Their search was then aided by a pair of aboriginal trackers who led them to the body. However the story of Fisher's ghost came about, it has entered popular folklore and lives on. Every year, Campbelltown holds a festival of Fisher's ghost to commemorate one of Australia's most famous ghost sightings. The creek near where the body was discovered has since been renamed Fisher's Ghost Creek, although nowadays it has been converted into a stormwater drain. Part 2. The Last Bus to Fragrant Hills in the Western world, October has become traditionally known as the spooky season. This is a belief that dates way back to Halloween's origins, with the Celtic tradition of Samhain more than 2,000 years ago. The Celts believed that the time around the end of October and the beginning of November marked the halfway point between the autumnal equinox and the summer solstice. This was also the time they believed that the veil between the living world and the realm of the dead was at its thinnest. Fun fact, the Celts would perform elaborate rituals around bonfires wearing animal skins, which is where we get the practice of donning costumes on Halloween today. The Chinese have a similar belief that there is a time of the year when the spirits cross over to the land of the living. Only their spooky season, better known as Zhuye, or Ghost Month, falls in the seventh lunar month each year. 
This is the time when it is believed the gates of heaven and hell stand wide open, allowing ghosts and spirits to enter the mortal world. During this time, many Chinese people will spend their time worshipping and praying to ancestors and relatives. They also make sure they don't break certain taboos to avoid getting on the spirits' bad sides. For example, you're not allowed to hang wind chimes in your bedroom because ghosts are attracted to the sounds of the chimes. They say you shouldn't place wet clothes outside to dry after dark. Also, uh, apparently you're not supposed to pluck, wax, or shave your legs because, I guess, ghosts don't like hairy legs? Although you can find a lot of ghost stories that have been passed down through the generations in China, there is one in particular that appears to be relatively recent in origin. And that's the story of the so-called Last Bus to Fragrant Hills. Like a lot of good ghost stories, this tale begins on a dark and stormy night. The date was November 14, 1995. It was late in the evening and the Route 302 bus was making its final journey for the night to Beijing's Fragrant Hills, located in Haidan District. At that time of night, there were only four people on board the bus. A young student, an old woman who sat in the seat behind him, the bus driver, and the bus conductor. Chinese buses sometimes employed bus conductors, much like train conductors, who took people's tickets. As the bus headed toward Fragrant Hills, the conductor noticed two men standing alongside the road up ahead who appeared to be attempting to flag the bus down. Normally, the bus driver wasn't allowed to make premature stops. But the conductor knew how cold and miserable it was outside, so he ordered the driver to stop and let the men board the bus. The driver reluctantly pulled over and opened the door. Everyone on board the bus was then surprised to see that there were actually three men. Two of them were extremely pale, and strangely they wore old-fashioned robes that looked like something straight out of the Qing Dynasty. Which was especially odd because if you know your Chinese history, you'll know that the Qing Dynasty came to its end nearly a century earlier. The third man, whom none of them had seen before, looked to be in rough shape. He had long, stringy hair, and his head was slumped down as if he were drunk. The two other men were keeping him propped up between them. The other people on the bus, the driver, the conductor, the young man, and the older woman, were all suddenly very uncomfortable with the situation. But the three new passengers didn't interact with anyone, and the conductor assumed they were actors who hadn't changed out of their costumes. The bus drove on, but then a few moments later, the old woman grew quite irate and began shouting to the conductor that the young man in front of her had stolen her wallet. The young man was taken aback. He insisted that he had done no such thing, but the woman wasn't hearing it. She kept shouting that he had stolen her wallet, and she demanded they stop the bus right now so they could head to the nearest police station. It really had been a long night, and this latest interruption was the last thing the weary bus driver wanted to deal with. So he did what the old woman demanded and stopped the bus. The woman grabbed the shocked young man by the arm and dragged him out of his seat and off the bus. After the bus took off, leaving them stranded by the side of the road, the young man turned angrily toward the old woman about to tell her off. There was no police station anywhere nearby, and he most certainly hadn't stolen her wallet. The old woman let out a sigh of relief and told the young man she knew he hadn't stolen from her, but she had to get him off the bus somehow. She told him that she had realized that they were all in danger. She said that when the three strangers boarded the bus, she noticed the wind from outside had blown the robes up that were worn by the two pale-faced men. And that's when she realized that they didn't have any legs. They were just floating there, holding the third man up. She realized then that they must have been ghosts. 
It's fortunate then that the old woman noticed this because by the following morning, bus 302, the last bus to Fragrant Hills, was reported missing. It wouldn't be found until three days later. But that just raised even more questions. According to the legend, the bus was later found submerged at the bottom of Meun Reservoir, about 100 kilometers away from Fragrant Hills. This was strange for several reasons. Not only was this a long way off the bus's normal route, but the bus should not have even had enough fuel to reach that destination. In some versions of the story, you'll even find reports that the gas tank was found filled with blood instead of petrol. Most disturbingly of all, though, was that inside the submerged bus, the remains of three heavily decomposed bodies were found. That of the bus driver, the conductor, and an unidentified man with long, stringy hair. The medical examiner was unable to explain what killed the three men, nor could he explain why the bodies had so heavily decayed after only a few days. On top of all that, when police inspected the security tapes at the entrance to the reservoir, the bus was not seen entering the premises at any times. So how did the bus get in there? To this day, no one knows. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Part 3. The Congelier Mansion When you think of the most haunted houses in America, you might think of California's Winchester Mystery House, or a certain address in Amityville, Long Island. But there is one home in particular in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania that gained a reputation as the most haunted home in America. It has even been sometimes referred to as the house the devil built. The mansion once stood at 1129 Ridge Avenue, in a quiet residential neighborhood in Manchester, along the northern edge of Pittsburgh. According to popular legend, it was built by a man named Charles Wright Congelier back in the 1860s. Congelier had made a fortune for himself in Texas following the Civil War. He managed to become very wealthy by taking advantage of the broken economy in the aftermath of the Confederacy. Men like him came to be known as carpetbaggers. After becoming filthy rich, Conjolier left Texas with a Mexican bride named Lida and a servant girl named Essie. When their steamship docked in Pittsburgh to pick up some coal, Conjolier took a look around the city and decided this would be a fine place to settle. The three of them got off the ship and Conjolier began looking for some vacant land to build a house. A few months later, the ornate mansion was constructed on Ridge Avenue. The Conjolier Mansion was considered one of the finest houses in the neighborhood. From his front porch, Conjolier had a breathtaking view of the place, where the Allegheny and Monongahela rivers met to form the Ohio. 
Tanjalir soon became a respected member of the business community. He opened his home for frequent parties and other social gatherings for the city's upper crust. Things seemed to be going pretty well for Charles Conjolier. But then, during the winter of 1871, things all came crashing down around him. It turned out that Conjolier had been having an affair with the servant girl Essie. The story isn't entirely clear whether this relationship was consensual or not. For a time, Charles Conjolier's wife Lida remained none the wiser. That is, until one chilly winter day when Lida went looking around the house for her husband, only to hear moaning sounds coming from inside the servant girl's upstairs bedroom. Lida went ballistic with rage. She ran down to the kitchen and snatched up a butcher knife and a meat cleaver. She raced back up the steps and began screaming Charles and Essie's names. Charles flung open the bedroom door only to find his wife standing there with rage in her eyes. Lida swung the meat cleaver. Conjolier fell to the floor with the meat cleaver sticking out of his skull. Essie cowered away in the corner as Lida proceeded to stab her husband 30 more times. Several days later, a family friend stopped by the house after he had grown concerned that he hadn't heard from either Lida or Charles in a while. The friend knocked on the front door, but there was no answer. The mansion felt oddly still and quiet, so he tried opening the door. He was surprised to find the door unlocked. The man took a tentative step inside the foyer and called out Charles and Lida's names, but he received no answer. Then he heard a faint creaking noise coming from the parlor. He called out again and headed in that direction. Inside the parlor, he found Lida Conjolier rocking back and forth in front of the window, cradling a bundled object in front of her like a mother cradling an infant. This was especially chilling to the man, though, because he knew the Conjoliers didn't have any children. The man asked quietly if Lida was all right. Lida acted as if she hadn't heard him. She kept rocking in her chair and quietly whispering a child's nursery song. The man took a few tentative steps closer to see what Lida was holding. With mounting horror, the man realized the bundle Lida was holding was soaked in blood. Lida kept staring out at the snow and whispering her lullaby. The man reached over tentatively and pulled back the blanket. That was when Lida let go of the bundle and let it fall. The object went thudding and rolling across the floor. The man cried out and stumbled backwards when he realized the object Lida had been holding was Essie's severed head. For more than two decades, the Conjolier Mansion remained empty. Most locals assumed the place was cursed and avoided it at all costs. Occasionally, young children would dare themselves to set foot on the grounds and throw rocks at the windows. They even came up with a nursery rhyme about the old battle axe and her meat axe. In 1892, the house was renovated into an apartment building for railroad workers, although most refused to stay for very long. The men complained of hearing ghostly screams echoing through the halls in the night or sometimes the mournful sobbing of a woman in rooms that should have been empty. Others claimed they heard the distinct creak of a rocking chair and the sound of a woman softly singing a lullaby. Within a couple years, the place couldn't find any tenants, so it was abandoned once again. The mansion remained vacant until 1901. That was when a German-born doctor named Adolf C. Brunrichter purchased the property. Right away, the doctor was considered to be something of an enigma, Several people warned Dr. Brunrichter that the house was haunted, telling him all about the home's violent history. But this didn't appear to faze him, and he chose to purchase it anyway. 
After he moved in, Dr. Brunrichter became quite reclusive. He was rarely seen by his neighbors and never interacted with anyone. Some people began taking bets on how long it would take for the man to move back out, or for something terrible to happen. As it turns out, that way wasn't for very long. On the night of August 12, 1901, the family who lived next door to the mansion began hearing blood-curdling screams coming from inside the house. Then an explosion rocked the building. The blast could be felt for blocks away. It blew out all the mansion's windows and caused cracks to form in the surrounding sidewalks. The police and fire department soon arrived. The fire department rushed into the burning building, and what they discovered was beyond a nightmare. In one of the upstairs bedrooms, they discovered the decomposed body of a nude woman who was missing her head. They later found the woman's head in a makeshift laboratory that the doctor had set up in a different room. Inside that lab were also discovered the remains of several more headless women. From what police investigators were able to figure out, it appeared that Dr. Brunrichter had been conducting experiments to bring these people back to life after decapitating them. As for the mad doctor, police conducted a citywide manhunt. But Dr. Brunrichter managed to evade capture and all the commotion, and wasn't seen again for several years. More than two decades later, in September 1927, police arrested an elderly homeless man in New York's Bowery District for public drunkenness, who told them his name was Adolf Brunrichter, and he had quite a story to tell. He said that he had once been an eminent doctor who had done extensive research into extending the lives of his test subjects. He told them he had once lived in a home in Pittsburgh where he often brought young women to. He then described horrific stories about wild orgies, torture, and murder. He even provided the police with the location of a number of graves of women who had not been discovered in the cellar. Authorities later checked the site where Brunrichter claimed the bodies were, but nothing was found. Brunrichter was kept locked up in jail for another month at Blackwell's Island. A few newspaper stories were printed about him, referring to him as the Pittsburgh Spookman. But for some reason, the authorities eventually deemed him harmless and let him free. During the time of his incarceration, the man wrote these words on the walls of his cell in his own blood. What Satan hath wrought, let man beware. After the police let him out, Dr. Adolf Brunrichter was never heard from again. For several more years, the house on Ridge Avenue remained abandoned. After all the many gruesome deaths that had become associated with it, most sensible people were naturally afraid to go near the place. On a few occasions, some ghost hunters went to the house to make contact with the restless spirits and the murder victims. A psychic medium named Julia Murray said she detected a horrible spirit on the premises. A witness who was with her at the time said that several heavy objects began flying through the air at her, barely missing her. Murray predicted that whatever this evil entity was, she was certain it would kill someone one day. Then in 1920, the stories surrounding the mansion caught the attention of the most legendary inventor in American history. Late in life, Thomas Edison became interested in spirits in the afterlife. Shortly before he died, he created a device that he hoped would allow people to communicate with the dead. Some stories claim that Edison had been a diehard skeptic of spiritualism right up until the point he visited the Conjolier Mansion. After which, whatever it was that he witnessed convinced him that spirits were real and that this event was what spurred him to build his ghost phone. In the mid-1920s, the Equitable Gas Company, which was located a few blocks away, laid off hundreds of its workers and replaced them with Italian immigrants at a lower wage. 
In order to house these workers, the gas company quickly converted a number of vacant buildings in the neighborhood into apartments, including the former Congelier Mansion at 1129 Ridge Avenue. Many of the Italian immigrants who lived in the building began to report strange phenomena to their employer. Strange sounds and ghostly footsteps were often heard at night. The gas company ignored these stories. That is until one night when two brothers died in a horrific accident. No one saw exactly what happened, but shortly after the two men got up from dinner one night, they were soon found dead in a pool of blood. One of the brothers was lying face down with a large splintered board driven straight through his chest, while his other brother was found strangled by a loose electrical cord dangling from the ceiling. Police were unable to explain how these strange deaths occurred, other than to say they were some sort of freak accident that probably happened after one of the brothers tripped on the stairs. Then on November 14, 1927, the story of the Congelier Mansion came to a fiery end. That was when a crew of 16 workers climbed to the top of a 5 million cubic foot natural gas storage tank to find and repair a leak. At 8.43 a.m., flames exploded from the tank in a massive fireball that could be seen for miles. The explosion was powerful enough to send steel and stone shrapnel hurtling through the air, as well as several human bodies. This led to a chain reaction that caused two other nearby tanks to explode as well. The force of the blast was so strong it shook buildings and blew out windows within a 20-mile radius. Locomotives were knocked off their tracks. Several nearby homes were flattened by the blast or caught in the wave of fires that swept to the neighborhood. This included the house at 1129 Ridge Avenue. When the smoke cleared, nothing but a smoldering crater remained of the most haunted house in America. You have to admit it's a pretty good story, right? Sadly, this is the part where I have to pour some cold water on it. Like a lot of urban legends, there are elements of truth to the story of the Congelier Mansion. There really was a massive gas explosion in the city in 1927. There was even a house that once stood at 1129 Ridge Avenue. But beyond that, there isn't a lot of evidence to support most of the other elements of the story. For one thing, the house at 1129 Ridge Avenue was built in the late 1880s, not the 1860s, as stated in the legend. It also doesn't appear that anyone named Charles Wright Congelier ever existed either, much less his housekeeper Essie or his murderous wife Lida. Although the use of solid dates for all these events makes the story seem that much more believable. At the same time, it also makes it easier to check the historical record and no such murders were ever reported in the city at this time. In truth, the house on Ridge Avenue was not even truly a mansion. It was a pretty standard row house for the neighborhood. Although it actually appears that at one point it may have actually been owned by a family named Congelier. Although Charles Wright appears to be entirely fictional, there was a woman named Marie Congelier who owned the house at the time of the explosion. In fact, she is the only real death that was ever associated with the house. On the day of the gas explosion, Marie Congelier died from a laceration caused by a piece of broken glass that severed an artery. But according to records, she died on the way to the hospital, not inside the home. Likewise, the story of the mad doctor Adolf Brunrichter appears to be a complete fabrication as well. This one seems to be a much more obvious hoax, because when you think about it, if such a horrific series of crimes really had occurred in Pittsburgh, we would still be talking about them today the way we do such infamous serial killers as H.H. H. Holmes. 
but there are no police records to support anyone ever finding any headless bodies or mad scientist laboratories on the premises. Thomas Edison really did become interested in the afterlife in his later years, although there is no evidence that he ever visited the house on Ridge Avenue. This part of the story once again appears to be a way of weaving in a bit of reality into the altogether fictional tale. Then there's the destruction of the house itself. Many versions of the story describe the house collapsing into a massive crater on the day of the gas explosion, almost as if it were getting sucked back into hell. In truth, the house at 1129 Ridge Avenue did suffer some minor damage, including the aforementioned broken glass that killed the owner, Marie Congelier. But that's about it. The house remained standing for several years after the disaster. It was finally torn down when they redeveloped the neighborhood and built a new freeway. Today, the only thing that remains of the house at 1129 Ridge Avenue is a really good ghost story. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Jim, Paul, and Rob for signing up and helping support the show. I couldn't do this without you. Just a reminder to patrons of the show, get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes, the latest of which will be dropping soon. This time around, I'm telling one more creepy tale for Halloween that just might be true. Or is it? I'd also really love it if you check out our brand new YouTube channel, which I call Dark Chronicles. There you'll find lots of videos that tell even more creepy stories from history. New videos go up each week. I'm really hoping you'll subscribe and comment because I really want this channel to be a success. If you're interested in checking out our Patreon or our YouTube channel, I'll put links to both in the show notes. Elsewhere, I've been having a lot of fun posting short-form videos on TikTok and Instagram. You can also find The Conspirators on our Facebook page and whatever you want to call Twitter nowadays. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our back catalog of shows. Feel free to comment or send us a message at any of those places. You can even send us an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. You can even give us episode suggestions. One more great way you can help the podcast out is to tell your friends and family about us and get them to subscribe and leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Currently, we're on Apple, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else throughout the podcasting multiverse. Thanks again for listening. And if you're hearing this at the time it comes out, happy Halloween. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.